0: Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and this is part two of the Alma Kellner story. So if you missed part one, go back to episode 22, give it a listen, and then come on back for part two. When we left off last time, Alma Kellner had gone missing. Several months later, her body was discovered in the cellar of St. John's Church. The prime suspect was the janitor of the church, a man named Joseph Wendling, whose wife, Lena they were holding in jail while the police began the search to find him. Knowing that Wendling was French, they realized this search might also need to go global. So on June 2nd, a telegram was sent to the Secretary of State, and it read, quote, City authorities here, anxious to have State Department advise American representatives in foreign countries to enlist services of local police authorities in tracing murderer of little Alma Kellner. This atrocious murder of the child of one of Louisville's most prominent families has aroused the entire community. Please advise me what information State Department desires and what steps can be taken by the government in this particular. "...local authorities will furnish Circular's all available data and postage upon receipt of instructions. Wire quick reply." To which the Secretary of State replied, "...forward Department Circular containing full description and information necessary to identify man wanted, Department will, upon receipt, send copies to diplomatic and consular offices throughout world and enlist their assistance." So everything was sent to D.C. to be distributed globally, but in the meantime, some local police felt their suspect might still be in Kentucky. Multiple witnesses saw a man fitting Wendling's description heading from Horse Cave to Louisville. And they described this man as French, around 5'10 and 150 pounds, with dark hair and a mustache. Now, I have posted Joseph on my Instagram, so if you want to see what he looks like, you can go check that out at KY History Haunts. And the description the police had worked up for Wendling was as follows, quote, Age 27, 5 feet 10 or 11 inches, weight about 140 pounds, blue eyes rather squinting, full protruding nose, heavy black eyebrows, black hair, black mustache inclined to curl, narrow stooped shoulders, swarthy complexion, rosy cheeks. Is a Frenchman, sometimes taken for Hungarian or Italian, Speaks with decided French accent, usually stands very erect with one foot extended as indicated in photograph, walks with long stride, blue tattoo on one forearm, has gunshot wound in left hand. And then in quotes, it says, not positive about this being left hand. So, right around this time, it had also become official that the stains found on the clothing in the Wendling's room were, in fact, blood stains. Now, records indicated that on June 4th, the police ordered Lena to be put in the sweatbox, thinking solitary confinement might coerce her to talk, but nothing in her story changed. The next day, on the 5th, a chilling bit of information surfaced. If Joseph Windling was the murderer, he was very calm and collected about it because it turned out that Sergeant Jerry Quill was actually led to the basement by Wendling himself to be searched at some point after Alma had gone missing, but before they'd recovered a body. They still didn't know Joseph's whereabouts, but they wanted to go ahead and get the ball rolling and at least get Lena in the courtroom. So, On June 8th, the formal inquest began and a huge crowd formed in the courthouse basement. There had been rumors that a surprise witness would make an appearance, and she was only known as the Woman in Black. And she did make an appearance, her name was Mrs. Rosa Staubel, and she said she'd been in the church the day that Alma went missing. She was with another woman named Mrs. Grail, but the other woman had gone home first. So it was just Rosa and Alma left praying. And she said that's when she saw the janitor enter the room and stare over at Alma several times. And then he walked down the aisle and out a different exit. And she said she felt suspicious when he came back in a second time. But she left the church around 10.45 a.m. And that was the end of it. So... I'm not sure if it's really that suspicious for a guy that works there to go in and check up on things when he's the one that closes everything when everybody's gone, but if she felt like he was suspicious, why would she leave the kid alone anyway? Anyway, the morning was spent selecting the jury and taking witness testimony. Um, So they would bring up the plumber, Mr. Sweet. They would bring up Father Schumann and Coroner Duncan. They were the first to testify. So... They also brought up Deputy Coroner William Kammerer, and he brought up the giant knife clotted with tissue and blood. And he went on to tell everyone there that the knife was found in the trunk in the Wendling's room, along with three razors, one of which the blade was also covered in blood and tissue. His testimony went on for about 20 minutes, and, And then after he was finished, the entire jury, plus the attorneys, police, coroner, reporters, and basically everyone in Louisville, were all taken back to the crime scene at the church so they could get an idea of what this this scene looked like. Then on the second day, Lena was actually expected to testify, but she didn't. And so Dr. Duncan was the next to testify. He got on the stand and he showed everyone the foot, strands of hair, charred shoes, and all sorts of other gruesome images. He was also asked if there was evidence of sexual assault, but he explained that the body was found too badly decomposed to be able to tell. And his best guess on cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Now, during all of this, there were two big issues that the newspaper reporters were just dying to know. They had these big questions. And the first one was, why do we not know anything about who this Joseph Wendling person is? What was his history? What What's his deal? You know, at first, Lena had said he had a criminal record. They pulled, and he had no records. So the second question they had was about, the watch chain that they found in the sub-cellar near the body. They said this piece of evidence was obviously like an adult's watch chain, but it wasn't Wendling's because they had proof somehow that the one that he wore was very different from the one they found down there. And this was something that just wasn't really being talked about. But it didn't matter. On June 9th, the coroner's jury read their verdict. Quote, "Alma Kelner came to her death on December 8, 1909, on the premises of St. John's Church at the southeast corner of Clay and Walnut Streets in Louisville, Kentucky, by violence at the hands of one Joseph Wendling." That the manner of the murder is unknown to us. But this was just the coroner's jury, so now they had to present everything to a grand jury in order to officially indict him. They spent another week going over all the facts and all the evidence. And on June 20th, Joseph Wendling was formally indicted for the murder. So they had an indictment, but they didn't have Joseph. Captain Carney was on his way to Texas after receiving a tip that he might be hiding out there Meanwhile, Chief Lindsay went to court and was issued a warrant for Wendling's arrest in Kentucky in case he was still there. And they tried to do all of this without the press getting word of it so that they could kind of sneak up on Joseph. They knew that if reporters knew what was going on, the information would be leaked and they'd never catch him. Now, a handful of men were arrested in Texas, but none of them were Joseph. So these poor guys were just getting... Falsely accused right and left. After that, police thought maybe he'd gone even further south to Mexico or Panama. And then it happened. The Courier Journal headline on the morning of July 31st, 1910, read, Wendling run down by Carney, denied killing Alma Kellner, arrest made in San Francisco. Captain Carney had been across the country through Mexico and into parts of Central America before finally finding Joseph hiding out in California. Two detectives from the San Francisco Police Department had to drag Wendling out from under a sink in a boarding house bathroom. Now, if you're curious what he was up to while he was on the run, he did meet a woman. Um, Apparently he met multiple women, but this one, uh, Cora Munea, They met in Houston, and he told her that his name was Henry, and that he was very wealthy, and that he wanted to marry her. But she said after a while, she kind of grew afraid of him, and she was glad when he moved on. But after he left town, he was still in correspondence with her. So when Captain Carney caught up with her, he started writing decoy letters back and forth with Joseph, pretending to be Cora, to find out where Joseph was heading. And apparently Wendling had been sending postcards to various other acquaintances, and police had intercepted those too, so they were pretty much tracking his every movement from him. Wendling told reporters and police that his disappearance had nothing to do with Alma. He said he and his wife were just on the outs, and he just wanted to get away from her. He also had an explanation for the bloody clothes. He said he'd They're from when he'd accidentally shot himself in the hand with a revolver, and I think the police already knew that because it was in their description that he had a wound on one of his hands. Now, in his possession at the time of his arrest were several stolen items from homes in the area where he was found, so he had been robbing people while he was out west, and Everyone at home in Louisville was so relieved they'd caught their suspect. Frank Fair praised Captain Carney and the rest of the investigators. But strangely, the Kellner family mostly kept quiet. Now it was up to the police to get Wendling back to Louisville. They left California on August 3rd, 1910. And reporters did know of their departure and kind of followed them the whole way, trying to get bits of information. There was a psychologist on the train for part of the journey back named Dr. Albert Ross Hill, who was president of Missouri State University at Columbia. And he was able to observe Wendling for a while, and here are his thoughts on him. Quote, That he is an abnormal chap, there is no question. And his actions would lead me to believe that he is guilty of the crime. However, it would be unfair for me to judge him before he is legally tried. This is simply an expert opinion based on what I saw in that room. The chap would not answer any direct question and invariably resorted to a subterfuge to dodge the question. It was an impossibility to hold his eyes while he closely observed everyone gathered about him. His eyes were constantly dancing. When we started in, he laughed many of the questions off, but toward the close, the smile had changed to a nervous twitching beneath the skin. Oh yes, he will soon break down, and I would advise that the most careful watch be kept on him. Now, around the time of her husband's capture, Lena was lawyering up, and I'm not clear on if she somehow earned the money or if someone came on pro bono, but she now had the services of J. Reginald Clements And he would represent Joseph as well. And during Joseph's trip back to Louisville, he received a telegram from his new attorney that said, quote, Insist on being brought to Louisville at once. Public sentiment is in your favor. People on the whole believe you innocent. Have no fear of mob violence. People here are sane, civilized, and law-abiding. There was some contention during the process of getting Joseph home. His lawyer was trying to argue that he had, they had no right to hold him, that he should be set free, that the various police departments who aided in his arrest didn't do everything by the book. So now the investigators who worked so tirelessly to catch him now had to defend their case to keep him. After some really heated courtroom hearings, they were finally able to make the last leg of the trip back to Louisville from St. Louis. For the last train ride home, they had to maneuver a way to essentially smuggle Joseph back into Kentucky, both for legal reasons and to throw off the media. And at one of the last stops before they got home, he did make one quick attempt to escape, but was unsuccessful. And finally, on August 12th at 8:15 a.m., they arrived at the 10th Street train station. And everyone was both nervous and exhausted. But Joseph seemed to be enjoying the attention he was getting, and he was even waving to curious onlookers as they went by. And a crowd was waiting as they pulled up to the Jefferson County Courthouse on 6th Street. Now, the first thing they did was show him the bloody clothing that they'd found in his room. And right off the bat, he was like, well, I mean, yeah, that's my clothing. And as soon as he was about to keep talking, his attorney joined them and directed Joseph not to answer any further questions. And when they realized they wouldn't get anything else out of him, he was sent a block over to the jail, where he was booked by Chief Deputy Jailer Eugene Blandford. When they got home, Captain Carney and Joseph Wendling were greeted very differently. When Captain Carney was finally able to go home to his family at their home on East Washington, among all the congratulatory letters and job offers he was greeted with, one stood out. It was from W.A. Pinkerton, head of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. It said, My dear chief, I wish to tender you my heartiest congratulations in running down Wendling. I consider that it was one of the greatest pieces of detective work I have ever known in my years, and I am glad of the face that you are indebted nothing but your own ability and skill in tracing this clever fugitive to his lair and effecting his capture. I have watched the papers with deep interest, not only on account of the brutality of the crime, but on account of the skill you displayed in following up Wendling. None of your friends wish you more hearty congratulations than I do. The successful termination of this hard-won, splendid achievement, is one that any detective in the world might be proud of. I arrived here on Monday night in connection with the race meeting, and I will remain during the month of August. My address is Congress Hall Hotel in this city, and I will be pleased to have a line from you when you get time to write. If I'd known you were going to California, I would have tendered you the services of our offices at San Francisco and Los Angeles, but I knew nothing of your route. I knew you met with the most cordial reception from the police in San Francisco, as John Martin is a big fellow like yourself in mannerisms and is one of the finest men in the world. Starting out on such a trail without much of a clue, you certainly are entitled to be congratulated on your success. With kindest personal regards, I am sincerely yours, W.A. Pinkerton. He also got praise from the mayor and all sorts of other people, and The day after his arrival home, Joseph had a little different experience. So he hung out. He spent a lot of time with his attorney, obviously, who tried to get him visits with Lena, but they just would not allow it. And then finally, a little later on, they did agree to let her visit. And then she like chickened out and instead she sent him a fruit basket, as one does. Now, on August 13th, Joseph Wendling made a public statement, which read as follows. Quote, To the public, I am innocent of the charges made against me. My wife and I are without adequate means to defray the expenses of my defense. I am a foreigner in your country, therefore powerful interests allied against me. I do not ask for mercy, but I appeal to every person in this community who has regard for justice to contribute such financial assistance as they can afford in order to ensure me a fair and lawful trial. Secure in my own knowledge of my innocence, I ask only a fair and lawful trial, and I cannot have my case fairly tried without money to pay lawyers and expenses. I feel that there is fairness enough in this community to help me to this and to see the guilty person as punished, whoever he may be. Send money in care of our attorney, J. Reginald Clements, 50345 Kentucky Title Building, who will make accounting and see the money is properly expended. We will publish names of those who desire and only at their request. Those who do not care to disclose their names need not so. Now, finally, on August 15th, Lena did go and visit her husband. The visit was described as affectionate, and she left him a dollar when the visit was over. So, even though he told police initially that he left because they were not getting along, now they seem to have made up. Meanwhile, their attorney was getting death threats for representing the Wendlings, so I doubt a lot of money was coming in from that request that he made. But now that they had Wendling in their custody, they could go on to plan a trial. So two new witnesses came forward, Dr. John J. Connolly and Dr. J. C. Morrison, who said they were the ones who saw Joseph when he told them in January of 1909 that he'd accidentally shot himself in the hand. So more time passed in legal limbo, and finally, Joseph Wendling was arraigned on October 3rd, and he pled not guilty. And the arraignment was fairly uneventful, and when it ended, Wendling was escorted back to the jail via Underground Tunnel. In November, they called for Sergeant Thomas Burke of the San Francisco Police Department and Cora Munea from Missouri to testify. So they arrived on November 26, 1910. The Courier-Journal reported on November twenty-eighth, the first day of the trial, that, quote, Some of the most interesting scientific evidence ever heard in a local courtroom will be introduced. And I can just picture 1910 me being so hyped about this. I guess Joseph and Lana had worked through their differences because by the time the trial started, she was fully supporting him, even brought him clothes and food. It was observed that he'd gained some weight during his incarceration, and it was reported that he was very concerned with his appearance, wanting to be well-dressed and well-groomed for the trial, which, I mean, same The trial presided over by Judge James P. Gregory began at 10.30 a.m., and the courtroom was packed. Lena greeted her husband with a handshake. The list of witnesses was announced and sworn in. By 2 p.m., they'd chosen five men for the jury, and they were able to fill all 12 seats by the end of the second day. And finally, it was time for opening statements, which were wild. Quote, you twelve men have been selected to try Joseph Wendling on the charge of murder. When you were sworn, then began for you a long and arduous duty. This is a difficult case and the evidence is greatly complicated, but the Commonwealth promises that it will go slow and infuse nothing into the case but justice. We hope that from the outset, absolutely nothing will sway your minds but the evidence as presented to you and that you indignantly will resent the infusion of any feeling except the feeling of justice and truth. You must punish the man who has committed the most horrible and degraded crime that has ever blackened the name of Kentucky or besmirched the honor of this country. This crime was the murder of an innocent little girl in God's house as she knelt in prayer before his altar. Now it follows that the more degraded the crime, the less likely it would be that the Commonwealth would have an eyewitness to it. As I want to state nothing but facts to you, as we shall prove them, I will admit that we will be able to bring no one into this court who saw the crime enacted, but the evidence will show, and show clearly, that there could be no motive for this crime other than the satisfaction of perverted passion. Alma Kellner left her home at 507 East Broadway at about 9.50 a.m. on the morning of December 8, 1909. Just past eight years old, she was in perfect health, she was brightly dressed, and wore a checkered coat, red mushroom hat, and tan gauntlet gloves. This particular day was the feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, and this little child was going to St. John's Church to offer up her innocent prayers and worship before the shrine of divine providence. After leaving her home, she tripped merrily up Broadway until she reached Hancock Street. As she passed Dr. Yant's drugstore, she tapped on the glass to a cat lying in the window and nodded to Mr. Yant, whom she knew well. On Hancock Street, she met Postman Augustus, whom she saluted briefly, and then hurried on. She had nothing of value with her, nothing that would cause her to be the object of an attack by burglars, and the man who murdered her did so either to satisfy or conceal a degraded passion. Now the end of the opening statement reads as follows, quote, I have tried, gentlemen of the jury, to sum up this case for you without exaggerating. We shall be able to prove it all. Joseph Wendling was the last man seen in church on the day that Alma Kellner disappeared. He admits that he locked himself in after the women worshippers had departed. He alone had access to the premises, and he alone could have covered the evidence of the crime. It was on his clothing that the blood and the flesh and the hair of this murdered child were found, and it was Wendling who fled before any man had pointed the finger of guilt at him. That he is a man capable of committing such a crime, we will also prove. After you have heard this evidence, there are only two things for you to do. You must either declare him innocent and turn him loose, or decree that he must die in the electric chair. This punishment alone is fitting for such a horrible crime. And that's it for part two of the Alma Kellner story. I'm going to share my thoughts and theories on this case at the end of part three. And I would also love to hear from you all and see what you think about this case. So if you have any thoughts, you can send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. You can send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at kyhistoryhaunts. Or you can find the Facebook page, Kentucky History and Haunts. And if you're loving the show, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your friends and family. It helps me out so much. So thank you, thank you, and I'll see you soon for part three.